like Chris Ward when he was like a 15 year old kid and just a phenom. And I could tell that if he liked a board, he'd be doing wraps and turns and gouges and surfing rail to rail. If he didn't like a board, he'd end up pumping it down the line and trying airs. Hello and welcome to The Drop on the Stat Podcast feed. My name is Danny Johnson. This week on the show, we chatted to Matt Biolis. I asked Matt about his recent second place in Stab in the Dark, any potential disappointment there. We also chatted about his new book, The Last Crusade, and then we just chatted about being a successful shaper, an extremely successful shaper that he is. But before we get to that, let's catch up like we always do on the past week of surfing with Brandon Buckley, Stab's editor-in-chief. We chatted about Cal Walsh, Kelly Slater presenting awards, Rich People Only, the new Jed Smith story. We got an audio note from Jed there. And also Sad Pads, the best Instagram account you've that you haven't seen. Or maybe you have. And then of course we rounded off with a surf scene like we always do. An anonymous surf scene. A confusing surf scene, but a really good one. Good morning, Danny Johnson. Good evening, Buckley. It is over here. Good evening, Danny Johnson. Hey, I'm still homeless at the moment, so I'm recording this out of the stab office. And I've never heard this before, but there's this band practicing in the background. I don't know if you can hear it, but they might be the worst band you could even... You, you couldn't cook up a band this horrendous, no matter how hard you tried. Can you hear it? I can just a little bit. I can't hear enough to tell how just appalling it is, but I could hear it a little bit. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to come from the recording, but... It, uh, it will be quite a, uh, a suffering podcast if it does. How are you going? I'm good. I'm not great. I really thought you were going to say there was a ghost. Um, and I would have been really <laughs> down on that. And then like a bad band is never as fun as a ghost. I don't even believe in myself. I, I certainly don't believe in ghosts. Do you believe in ghosts? Uh, not really. Like, the only time that I kind of made me almost believe in them is... I was in Ireland once on a surf trip and this place looked real cool on Airbnb. Like, oh yeah, here's a little cottage cabin thing like out 20 minutes from everything. And uh, you know like sleep paralysis? Mm -hmm. Like when you wake up in the night, you can't move. Mm -hmm. That happened. And I felt like there's like kind of a light over me and it was really scary. And I was like, was that a ghost? That's the closest I've came. Maybe that was just a weird dream, but that was like the only thing that ever happened that I've been like, oh shit, like there's a ghost here maybe. Hmm. You think it was a ghost? Um, that wasn't really what I'll call conclusive evidence, no. But okay. I'm open to the possibility, but you're going to have to do better than that. Should we get into some, some news? Catch up in the, the week's news, Buck? Let us catch up on the week's news, Daniel, and audience. Kelly Slater will be presenting at the Oscars. So let's let's go into this. Um, you know when surfing, you know, they got surfing, skating, rock climbing in the Olympics, and the whole <laughs> thought was, okay, like the ratings are dropping and dropping like the younger generation doesn't care and then they're like hey kids like here's some skateboard stuff you know oscars <laughs> they were up at nearly 60 mil viewers in the 90s 2021 was the lowest year ever with about 10 mil they've got kelly presenting this year they've got sean white they've got tony hawk 
let's just read between the lines here, folks. You know? <laughs> Man. Does the mainstream even know who Kelly is? It's been a long time since Pam and Baywatch. I'm not sure. And I mean, like, who does the mainstream, does the younger generation even know? Or they clearly don't care about the Oscars. Everybody just wants to watch that show Euphoria and watch the children just do drugs and bang. Yeah. And so, like, what are you going to do? Watch the, watch the Oscars instead? Like, it's it's a funny one. But it's... And with the, with the Sean White and uh, Tony Hawk being in there, too, that almost pissed me off. I'm like, there's no way... Those guys like can't be as good as Kelly, right? Like, they're just kind of roped in as like these icons of these sports. But like, it, it almost bummed me out to see those guys on there too, because I'm like, Kelly's that different level. Fuck off with your Sean White. Yeah, they're not winning pipe at fifty or whatever the yeah. equivalent is. Right, that's just, that's just not happening. Did did Kelly's win at pipe send him back into his old stratosphere of fame? Did that re-inject his his famousness? I must have. It must have given him like a that age thing. Must have given him a boost, right? Being that what? old, deadliest wave in the world. Like for sure, I saw like headlines on ESPN about that. All the mainstream shit. Like I think that that made the biggest splash. Like, I think he's made in the mainstream in a while. Hmm. Well, he's actually on carpool karaoke with Sean White and Tony Hawk as well. Have you seen that? I saw. I didn't watch it, but I saw that it exists. Um, that one Man, the, the, it doesn't sound like the Oscars have got you this year and carpool karaoke doesn't have you either you couldn't even click play if Kelly's in it no there's just no chance did you watch it I watched the ad yeah I don't know if it's out yet but the ad's out and I watched that I, I'm, okay. I'm a big Kelly fan I, I will tune into the Oscars just to see Kelly what they what they sing it's pretty embarrassing it's three people in a car that don't really need to be in a car together singing mm. when they don't really I don't I guess I don't understand the show to be honest Broke my pelvis, fractured my skull, I had pulmonary lung contusions. Both of those are kind of nothing. That's actually how I lost all my hair. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever seen an episode, but I've seen the f frame grabs of famous people in the car. It's, yeah, it's pretty weird. Yeah, no, I'm never going to watch that. I mean, we live in an age where just anything's at your fingertips at any point in time. Probably going to look up some stuff about like dinosaurs or brandy or some pornography instead of ever watching that. Brandy? Like the drink? Yeah. Yeah, there's a town nearby that produces it. I'm fascinated. You know, I was I, I kind of thought you were talking about the R&B singer Brandy. I wasn't sure if it was the drink or. You seemed upset that it wasn't. You were like, "Oh, Brandy, well, like you, yeah, you like it too." I hope that they make him do. I mean, clearly he's not going to win away or give away like the award for best film or something, right? Um, I hope it's something obscure, best makeup, something like that, which probably matters a lot to a lot of people. But I hope he just goes, I hope he goes full fucking cowboy and just goes on some sort of political rant um, oh. or existential rant. That yes. is my hope for this ceremony because that's, that's what the Oscars need. They think they need, oh, here's a skateboarder surfer thing. No, you need, you need just a full crisis on the stage. So 
that's uh, my pitch to you. And what would it be? What do you think Kelly's crisis should be? I mean, I think we're done with the COVID stuff for now, right? Like that horse, I'm just done hearing it. Oh so. my God, that's so done. I hope I hope it's something ayahuasca related. Um, hey, wait a or minute. Or maybe just like, when what date are the Oscars? Does this mean that he's not coming to Australia, despite all the rumors that he was? Well, the Oscars are on March twenty eighth, so that's in five days. He's still going to Australia, but maybe once he has this crisis on stage, he'll get invited to another award ceremony, and he won't go to Australia. Well, the last time I saw Kelly present an award was back in 2017 at the Australian MTV Music Awards. He got on stage. It was when the, the Quicksilver Pro was on and Kelly obviously wanted to win titles at this point. And he flew to Sydney to attend these awards in the middle of the event. He got on stage with Anna Nicole Smith who dropped her dress mid-presentation and she had these MTV stickers over her nipples. And so it was this scandalous moment i don't know if kelly knew ahead of time that, that was she... wait that was 2017 oh no no i said 2007 did I? or maybe 2005 oh okay i, th- I thought you said 17 but I, maybe my ears are stupid oh no your eyes are stupid or one of them is stupid your ears one. are fine yeah yeah and every week working it <laughs> i'm gonna mention it every time yeah and so that was, it seemed like an odd choice for Kelly at the time. I remember in his documentary, Letting Go, he talked about it as maybe not the best choice to attend that award ceremony in the middle of the contest. Tonight, is it true that you're hosting the MTV Awards? Uh, I'm presenting an award, yes. I'm presenting Video of the Year Award with Anna Nicole Smith, I believe. I just thought, find Sydney right in the middle of the Quicksilver Pro, first event of the year. You know, a really important event to win, to get your world title campaign underway. It just seemed like a crazy thing, you know, to go to Sydney, to stand on stage with a chick with big tits. Going to the MTV Awards during the Gold Coast contest, I really don't think that was the wisest choice to make. And it seems like history repeating itself, Buck. He's got a great lead and now he's, he's off attending award shows. I know Kolohe just flew into town today. He's here. He's posted up. He's ready to surf. And what's Kelly doing? He's hanging back, doing, presenting awards. Yeah, yeah. And I was, it wasn't clear if, like, if they're going to roll out this little karaoke crew together and they're all going to present. But, like, I do know, didn't Sean White have, like, a, a history of something of him sending dick pics or something? So maybe he'll do the whole Anna Nicole Smith thing and just, you know, <laughs> hang some hog up there. <laughs> Kale Walsh is an immediate stab edit of the year finalist. So it's it's pretty hard to describe a surf edit in words, right? Like, what are you going to say? Like, oh, he's big tubes and he does big airs. Like, like, what do you really fucking say, right? You know what I would say? I've got a description for, for Kale's edit. It's power aerials. You know that term, power oh, air? Okay, okay. Yeah, hadn't heard in a few years, but I like to see that you're on the campaign of reviving it. <laughs> yeah, Kelly first said that when he was describing Dane about a, 300 years ago in a Young Guns video, I think was the first. Well, that was the first time I ever heard it. But that would be one way to describe what Kale's doing in this video because it's not, it's not just airs. They're, they're vicious. Well, I think that's nice, power airs, but I think Albie Lair actually found the best words to sum it up when he posted an Instagram just saying, 
I'm going to throw away all my hard drives and get a job at the grocery store after watching this. That's, that's I think, the best descriptive language I could use to tell you how good this edit is, is Albi Layers now. I don't know if they have Trader Joe's on Maui. Um, I don't know what stores they have there, but he, if you want to find him, he'll be there. The great resignation. It's just You just feel incompetent about whatever you do after you watch that edit. And in the interview, he talks about how you know, he's 22 now and he's probably got a lot of people in his ear telling him, go start a vlog, do this, do that, like more content, more content, do this, you know? And I mean, he's been working on this thing for a year, maybe two years, which is not the path that most people are taking right now, especially not at 22 years old. And when I talked to him about it, he just said something along the lines of like, hey, look, like I grew up on surf movies. I still watch them all the time. I still revisit my favorite parts. Like that's what I want to create. I want to create something that people are going to watch again and again, remember the songs, play them on their way to the beach, make you want to surf, like something that like is not just so single use, like something that you're going to revisit and (sighs) job done here. Yeah, well, you know, what's funny is, is I, I really just don't enjoy watching surf minis. There's, there's too many of them. There's too many people that cameras are too cheap. There's too many people standing on beaches holding them and it's too easy to put something up on the internet. So they're just hard to get excited about. And especially, you know, when you work for a surf magazine, you, you end up being surrounded by them all the time. And when Kale's video came in, Tom had it on his computer, didn't tell anyone he was clicking play. And then I just started hearing these like visceral reactions from Tom. And so I got up. Next thing you know, everyone in the office eventually makes their way over to the computer and everyone's freaking out and then someone comes in late and then we watch it again and then it gets another run. And I can't remember the last time I saw a video that was watched on loop, it like back-to-back viewings. And yeah, Kale, he definitely achieved that goal. If, um, yeah, if that's, what, if that's what he was after, then he got it immediately in, in the Australian office because everyone, everyone was freaking out and, and back-to-back viewings. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. Like, cause I, I think even if you don't watch it much now, like everybody has a favorite part, you know, everybody, everybody has a favorite movie and something that you revisit and seeing him just go after that, I think is so cool. And that's why we are doing the edit of the year. That's why we're giving somebody a Bitcoin, which is, uh, currently worth 4,000 Ethereum <laughs> and two <laughs> NFTs. <laughs> Anyway, this week we have another entry coming from Ollie Henry. I don't want to give too much away here because I think we can go into it next week. But one thing I will say is that in Ollie's thing, Chris Binns interviewed him and he also got a quote from Taj about Ollie. And Taj said that he has the lunatic sorry, Taj said that he has the lunatic gene, which let's just stop and think about that for a minute, because that's really big, right? That basically implies if you just like pull back on a wave or maybe it's really big one day and you decide, oh no, my ankle hurts. That's just genetics. Uh, you can't be blamed <laughs> for that now. Well, yeah, Taj is known for being on the cornerstone of all science, vaccine, 5G and genome sequencing. The funny thing about saying that he has the lunatic gene is it seems like just about every single person from WA has that gene. So uh, unless he has a double up of it or something. I mean, that's saying a lot for a West Oz person to, to say that this guy, well, no, he stands out as a lunatic around here because, yeah, they, they seem to be all pretty nuts. Yeah, well, I mean, isn't that how genes work? You know, it's just a certain population and maybe one gene's more prevalent. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. So they're all inbred. Everyone in Western Australia is all inbred. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, next time you pull back on a good one, uh, just look at your friend and say, sorry, it's genetic, and you'll be all good. Rich people only. So this one isn't actually a story. This is actually the new Stab Premium tagline that we're rolling out for 2022. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that. It's not that expensive uh, to join Stab Premium, Buck. Ah, rich people only. Okay. Uh, but for real, this is this is a story. It is written by Jed Smith. The story breaks down something that I think a lot of people have probably noticed. Uh, it's no surprise that in places all over the world, especially Australia, U.S., Europe, coastal real estate prices have been skyrocketing. A lot of people that have a lot more money than these little coastal communities are used to seeing are now in the water um, riding fancy surfboards, usually epoxy. Usually epoxy, a little bit too small. Um, and they've got the Apple Watch. Uh, so, <laughs> And they order pizzas to the lineup. And they order pizzas to the lineup. It's, that's how you could tell. It's just when the guy's ordering the pizza, oh, there he is, coastal gentrification. Anyway, this breaks down that. It's Jed's take on that whole situation, and it's, uh, like always, a good read. G'day, Jed Smithy. This week, my offering to the Stab Premium website was an article called Rich People Only, How Coastal Gentrification is Changing the Surfing Experience and Culture. Yeah, it basically regards a pretty well-known phenomenon called gentrification by which the price of property in a given area goes up uh, and so to the cost of rent and Generally, it results in a bit of a demographic change or a significant demographic change where low-income, working-class, welfare-class residents are pushed out uh, by middle-class, upper-middle-class residents uh, who can afford the increase in cost of living, um, which is a bit of a change for surfing, at least in this country, Australia, where... Coastal real estate has either traditionally been pretty affordable or it's been legislated that there is affordable homes by the coast, uh, by which I mean public housing or social housing. Uh, Bondi, Maroubra, Merriweather, The Tweed, aka Coolangatta, um, Coffs Harbour, all these places were pretty well you know that a good slice of affordable housing social housing public housing uh, which guaranteed a certain quota of lower socioeconomic residents uh, that's increasingly not the case as governments choose to sell off that housing and build it you know further inland in less desirable areas now that coastal real estate has become popular um, what this means for surf culture at least at the pointy end of the spectrum is well it, it turns out poverty uh, is a pretty crucial ingredient in sporting success or uh, at least yeah it has been 
over the years looking back. Everyone from Mick Fenning to Gabriel Medina um, has come from, you know, uh, John John Florence, uh, Lisa Anderson, uh, even Kelly Slater, you know, they've all come from a measure of either single parent households or uh, working class, or working middle class, or, you know, a parent who's, you know, been subject to alcoholism in Slater's case. Um, so, yeah, it's proved quite a motivating factor. Italo Ferreira, another classic example, uh, you know, the son of an impoverished fisherman from uh, the north of Brazil there, learned to surf on his father's esky lid. Um, yeah, there's just something in uh, being poor that enables you to achieve sporting greatness. Uh, I think it's what Jamie Brizick calls ghetto spirit. It's what Derek Hind, the surf journalist, calls bastard desire. Uh, and I guess, you know, with affluence, you kind of lose a lot of that. So the rising cost of coastal real estate in places like Australia, America, parts of Europe, it, uh, I guess it's, it's going to change the nature of professional surfing in terms of, um, I guess, our ability to compete with someone of similar ability who's come from poverty, say, uh, you know, a place like Brazil where 60 million people live along the coastline, many of whom live in favelas and uh, cheap or um, kind of low-quality housing and low, low socioeconomic areas. Uh, and, and that's proved to be the case, as we can see. Brazil has the mortgage on world champions, at least in the men's side of the draw. Um, the only one to hold a flame to that. John John Florence, another kid from a single-parent household, one of three three boys, two Alex Florence. Um, yeah, it, I guess people are getting a little bit mad in the comments with regards, uh, you know, people saying, what should we do? Like, what what is the the solution to this? Um, you know, why write an article like this? Uh, I mean, look, I'm not here to give solutions. I'm here to point out what the what is actually happening and the fact that it's it is changing surf culture. Uh, cited in the article, Andy King, Mick Fanning's former coach, Gabriel Medina's former coach, Jamie Brizick, the. 1980s, 1990s pro surfer turned journalist from San Fernando Valley. Um, yeah, so I hope you enjoy it. It's causing a bit of a stir online at the moment. Uh, but yeah, get stuck in and have a read. Sad pads. Dissecting the most horrific traction applications this world has ever seen. Oh my god, this is a story on the free side of our site and... I have to be honest, this is this got the most laughs out of me that I've had on like a surf internet article in a while. Like this is like, this is easily the best story of the year. <laughs> easily. I I was like part of me was like, oh man, so funny. Like I almost wanted to put it on premium, but at the same time it's it's an interview with a guy that runs an Instagram account called Sad Pads. It just didn't feel quite right. And so this one's for the people. This one's for the poor people. This is one for all you poors out there. Uh Give you guys something to live for. Yeah. Every now and then we toss the peasants a bone. Every now and then. You know, we're good people, right? That's what we do to tell ourselves, to feel good about ourselves, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, how did, where did you find this? So I've seen this account for a while, and I thought it'd be one of those things that just loses steam quickly. Sad Pads is on Instagram, at Sad Pads. It's, 
incredible. His whole thing is finding the worst traction pad applications in the world. I saw it. I thought this is hilarious, but it's going to fizzle out. There's no way he can keep finding them. He keeps on finding them. They're not getting any worse. It, it's it's fucking incredible what some people do to their surfboards with traction it's, pads. Like It's truly astonishing. <laughs> it's shit that you've never seen before. Like you see somewhere like, oh, that's, you know, maybe a foot from the tail. It's a little bit awkward, but on a big board, like he's got some where it's like a full pad of like a kicker, like in the middle of a surfboard. <laughs> that is the best <laughs> one. And actually, but it's borderline functional. When I saw that one, I was like, oh, that's pretty incredible because there were pads at certain periods of surfing that had little hooks that you could put your slip your foot underneath. And, and I remember. Do it. You remember those things, right? For aerials. Yeah. So it's not that insane to have a pad facing the wrong way, you know, where your front foot is, except for the fact that you know, it would make for the worst paddling position ever. Your chest would be straight on top of that thing. But as insane as that one is, I, I really, I, I did want to try that. That one got me a little bit too, but I think my favorites are like the the ones that because that one's tilted, right? The kicker's up facing the the nose, so that's the theory. There's one on there where it's like literally just one of the kicker in like the middle of a board. Yeah, that one's really good. Yeah, and then there's some people who've like just cut up like literally these people are psychopaths. Like I've just cut little pieces out of their pads and covered the board. I guess maybe to like get more out of a pad instead of instead of using the pad entirely it's like it's incredible and he keeps going he's hilarious too he talks about like what our ancestors would have wanted when it comes to traction pads it's just it it's so funny because it's so fucking niche right like yeah how many people in the world really get this not that many and to spend a considerable amount of time making an Instagram account to please those people, like we have to celebrate this. I hope it never ends. Has there been one yet that's ended up on the bottom? I don't think we've seen that. I don't Whoa. think we've seen that. That's that's the next frontier, I think. I've been thinking about sticking one on the bottom of my board just because I've been going too fast. Speed control, yeah, I get that. I've always said that about you. Yeah, who are these people of the internet that dedicate so much time for free for our bemusement? just and such a niche just you're not you're not you're not going too far with that no. <laughs> you're never gonna get a hundred thousand people in that door on behalf of everyone who's ever seen that we we thank you what's his name i don't even know i think he's anonymous oh wow wow yeah yeah thank you for your service we got an anonymous surfs in this week as well buck the guy wanted to Ooh. remain i mean we can hear you can hear his voice i don't really get the anonymous part but yeah that's, that's coming up soon yeah yeah well you can muffle it out like they did in those crime documentaries yeah. i'm not gonna it's gonna be his voice as is yeah but if we get a really fucked up one that should be a condition if oh, you have yeah. something that yeah. is really appalling we'll decide because you're just gonna hand it off to us whether you're gonna do that or not but uh that's on the table yeah, that is an option. If anyone wants their voice altered, we do have the technology here at Stab Magazine to do that. So please mm. just let us know. But if you just say it's anonymous, that just means we're not going to say your name. So anyway, let's uh, let's move on to some more news, Buck. Let's do it. Drive through episode three, now playing on Stab Premium. Uh, did you watch this one yet, Danny? Yeah, I did. I, I gave it a little click play just before. Okay, let's just. I'm gonna ask a question right off the bat. Then, did do you think they ate Barney? Man, I I think they did. I actually think 
that was completely legit. The way they presented it and said it was, I was sold. Do you think so? Yeah. Oh, I lean that way. I was like, at first I was like, that's a joke. And then by the way, by the time it's all over, I'm like, I don't think that was a joke. Did you guys like the food? And everyone's like, it was great, it's insane, I ate all of it. I was like, I just want you guys to know that I sprinkled Barney's ashes in the food and I hope you guys all know and for the rest of your life you have Barney inside you. This is real. <laughs> this is Barney's ashes. Shut the fuck up. And I put it in all the food. <laughs> <laughs> I got a piece of Barney in this I hope it's true because we shouldn't be so, we shouldn't be so scared to eat the dead. It's not a cannibal no. act. I'm sure it was well diluted ashes amongst a tasty sauce. I, th I think it, maybe it's something, you know, surfing has great traditions. The paddle out, it's, it's a beautiful thing to celebrate people that have passed in surfing. I think it's quite special. And I think the next step to that, because the paddle out has been a little bit co-opted by other causes there's been environmental mm. causes now and then there's even been oh yeah some not so some not so worthy causes where people have done paddle outs in protest there was one about a reality tv show um, here in australia recently where they did a paddle out which i just thought was was there yeah it was pretty embarrassing I was what, like, what oh, tv God. show so Fire there was Bays? yeah yeah that one so they've made a reality tv show about um this town and not even about this town, um, but just some people and they, they named it after the town and some of the locals weren't happy. So they did a paddle out, which was, I thought was a horrendous use of the paddle out. So it's time to evolve. And I think eating the ashes of surfers that have passed, like the legends of, that have passed, could be a new thing we do. Oh, I'm on board. I'm on board. And... Why not start with Barney? You're probably wondering why we just talked about a, a fun series uh, where surfers drive around in an RV and immediately kind of go into, you know, a little bit of cannibalism. But episode three of the drive-thru is all about Sean Barney Barron, who was on the original drive-thru. Um, he's no longer with us. And they had a day in Santa Cruz in his honor. And... It's fucking great. I mean, besides for it ends with what we were just talking about. I don't want to give too much away other than that because it's a great watch. Like I'm really finding a groove with these things. Like they, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if I was going to really love them and I'd have to just come on here and say, oh yeah, it's fun. Go watch it. But like, I'm loving these things. I look oh, forward to them incredible. every week. They're the best. Yeah. Eat. They're just scratching some itch that like I didn't know I had. I would literally watch Benji do everything i don't even want to say there's nothing i wouldn't watch him do i find him that entertaining so his addition alone or, or having him as the main character to me is just it's entertainment right there but then on top of that you've got young hi-fi guys then you've got like donovan who's hilarious but dane's there it's it is a pretty incredible recipe for a tasty tasty little bit of tv buck it is pretty funny you shouldn't yeah, be so surprised I... as to as to why it's so tantalizing Hey, you're right. You're right. I'm stupid for being surprised. And I'm loving Donovan. You're loving Benji, but I'm loving Donovan. And I got to be honest too. Drive through the first ever one, the one that Barney was on, he was probably my least favorite. I mean, you had Timmy Kern on there, which as like a goofy foot, 13-year-old who wanted, who wanted to do air is like, okay, yes, this. 
And then Donovan's kind of on his weird board, he's doing his groovy thing, and yeah, I liked him in his little character bits, but like the the serving there, I just no, don't give me any of that. And to see him on this one, and God, his personality just makes me laugh so hard. Like mm. we've talked about it, I talked about it with Benji, but we tried to give him a code to watch the drive-through on Stab Premium. <laughs> And he just booted the code out to his entire audience. He just seems like such a fucking space ass. And it doesn't seem like, like, I guess maybe I would get the idea that Donovan was like kind of hamming it up, putting on like a persona. It really does not seem that way. It really just seems like he is this spacey dude who is always on another wavelength, different planet somewhere. And when you point the camera at him, funny things happen. And he is, he's my favorite so far. The having the older crew and the younger crew, it's almost like both things validate the other. Like having the younger crew, Eric, Parker, Dane there validate like Benji and Donovan, and having like Benji and Donovan kind of still around almost on the drive through thing helps uplift the younger guys. It's like this perfect, just like relationship that uh, I want, I want to be in that RV next time. Yeah. You know what blows me away though? Benji's talking about, oh, I've been trying to call Dane. I've been trying to call Dane. I couldn't get a hold of him. wasn't sure if he was going to come. And I'm just thinking, man, if not even Benji can get onto Dane, like what is that about? And then on a whole nother level, in this same episode, Dane's talking about how he can't get a wave. If I went to the top of the peak, it would go flat forever. And then if I went wide, someone would be one foot deeper than me. I didn't really find much, but it it looks fun from the beach. That blows me away as well. Like if I was to wake up in Dane Reynolds' body, like some sort of Freaky Friday type situation, I would paddle out in the surf and expect to get any wave I wanted because if, if I was surfing with Dane, I, I would feel stupid trying to stand up on a wave that he could be standing up on. You know, I just want him to do it. And the idea that Dane's paddling around and can't catch whatever wave he wants is just insane to me. Yeah, imagine calling him up. Oh, Oh, dang. <laughs> like, like. Well, do you remember that Stab in the Dark All-Stars? It was an extended interview that Sam did with Dane. Oh, yeah. And he's it, talking the, about... The parking lot. Yeah, and he's, and he's talking yeah, about oh, yeah. like out there trying to get ways and then this person recognizes him and starts chatting. He's like, shit, I can't snake this guy or I can't hassle him. And it, that blew my, way, it blew my mind because I did not expect... Think about in like medieval times, the guys that would arrive in a city and just take over and take everything they wanted. That's like how they surf. <laughs> they're, they're warriors. Hey, what are you? Uh, I'm a civilian. <laughs> I'm a peasant. Yeah, I mean, there's so many layers to it. I just, I, I grew up, I'm like a product of my environment where it was kind of shameful to have that attitude like my office like like there's that classic story of the 80s pro surfer that like told a guy to get out of his office like he wouldn't go in his office and stand on his desk and kick papers around and shit and I always found that that was sort of like a shameful attitude because I'm a product of my environment pro surfing in Ventura late 90s early 2000s was like I don't know everyone was really protective of their spots there's localism Pro surfers coming in from out of town, first of all, is like red flag, get the fuck out of here, beat it Southers. So I've always had this sort of approach to other people's lineups of being really respectful to the locals because that's how I grew up. 
And when you paddle out, it's like you start assessing the lineup and reading. You're like, okay, that guy looks like he surfs here a lot. Uh, that guy might not, but he's a good surfer. That guy doesn't know what he's doing, but he's gonna paddle. Like, you kind of do that, and then you start taking ledgers, and like, all right, that guy just paddled around. He doesn't know what's going on. He fell in the drop on that. I uh, fucked that guy. And then that guy paddles up to me. And he's like, yo, damn, so stoked to see you in South Africa. And I'm like, fuck, okay, I can't like, can't really snake that guy. And then like, any, can we all just make a pact as surfers or any listeners to this podcast or anyone to just like let Dane surf? Like that is, that's that should just be a, a, a straight up rule. Like he gets whatever wave he wants. That's the world would be a better place if we just let him do his thing. I agree completely. Just get out, get out of the way. You're ruining it. Get out of the way. And one last thing on this drive through, Benji does a gainer off the cliff for Barney. Barney's gainers off the cliff, I gather, and uh, he's wearing this wetsuit, and you can see the Surf Ranch logo on it. And it made me think: Did he steal a wetsuit from the Surf Ranch? Um, and you could see that little like bear, and then there's like a little SR logo on it. And I'm like, I hope he fucking lifted that thing from the Surf Ranch. That just makes the whole thing. It's not addressed in it at all, but I hope it happened. Maybe we could ask him follow up because power move, love it, power air. All right, it is surfs in time. This one, as Danny said, this will be an anonymous one, but it's a complex system. This. This took me a while to really think about and really think about the logic behind it, the reason. This is a complicated surf sin. It's very complicated. Yeah, let's it's let's just hear it. We'll get into it. Yeah, we'll give it a whirl. Hey Danny, hey Buck. I have a pretty quick surf sin for you guys today. So it was pretty big where I'm from one day, and me and my buddy decided to go out to one of our favorite spots that isn't very crowded. And when we got there, we noticed there was only one guy out, and it was really good. So we looked at each other, we paddled out, and when we got out there, we decided to be complete assholes. Um, so what the break looks like is there's a rock that you paddle up next to or for the left. So the person closest to the rock obviously has a priority. So what we did is we went out, and my buddy would sit right next to the rock, and I would be to the left of him. He would go as if he had priority on the wave, and I would burn him. I would paddle back out, go on the inside of him, and he would do the same thing. We did this for about an hour, not letting the other guy get one wave, and he just paddled in and starting to feel pretty guilty about this. So I'm glad to hear the penis. Can you try and explain that to me, Buck? Can you make some sense of that for me? Okay, yeah, I mean, I, I get it as it's described. I get it in theory. I don't get it in practice. Yeah. Like, was there no two wave if, sets? Well, or if two people go on one wave, wouldn't the other guy just go next to the rock? Like, why is two people going on a wave and then just going on the inside of that guy again different from one person doing it? Like, I don't, I don't. It, I it's, think, I think my understanding would be, even though it wasn't stated, is that going next to the rock was too deep to make it, but the other guy would then have to drop in. So he's taking up deep, which sort of essentially blocks the other guy and then his friend can just kind of drop in a little bit on the shoulder, which is a sort of a surf scene of, uh, in itself, really just taking off on the shoulder outside of what would be the legitimate takeoff zone. It, it is confusing. That's, I mean, that's one potential reason. Yeah, it's complicated. I, I guess I didn't think about that. I didn't consider that. 
that would make more sense to me because I was just literally picturing people taking off right next to a rock, and I'm like, okay, so two people go, and then they just all of a sudden paddle out. I I, I pictured a way tighter takeoff, basically. Mm. Usually when you're taking off rock, near rocks, it's pretty tight, you know? And that's what I had in mind, but yours makes more sense. Still, a complicated system. It's, I'd say, overly complicated. What is, it's, there's got to be a better way, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that does happen in, in Indonesia, there's been people that paddle out with local surfers. They pay local surfers. The local surfers take off and then let the less experienced surfers drop in on them, and that way they can essentially pay to get really good sets at places where they wouldn't otherwise. And I think a lot of people have seen that. I don't know if that happens elsewhere in the world, but I've seen it happen there. And this, yeah, it's a weird system. It's trying to make sense of this thing is is one side of it. But then on the other side, just the the bullying, the nastiness of it was was a whole nother level buck. Yeah, it was. But maybe that's what you want to address your penance. That's not where I'm going to go. Uh, <laughs> what do you got? What's your penance? Well, I'm going to go, if you're going to be a dick, then just fucking own it. Like, just just do it, okay? Don't create this weird system. He said it's his home break, I think. And so, like, if you want to do that, then just do it. Don't be all weird about it. Um, and so I think the sin that I'm identifying here is just the, the desire to deceive, right? Hmm. So I think to get in touch with that and to understand it and to process it and to heal, he's going to need to do something blatant. Um, I picked up California in his voice. I could be wrong, but my kind of thought was California if not California, then just insert some other localized wave wherever this guy lives near. But I'm going to go California. There's that wave Lunata Bay near LA, which um, it's like an insanely rich community where people act tough in the water. Stab, Stab Premium to, subscribers. Yeah, it's the whole, it's the hub of Stab Premium. We're going to do an NFT event there. Um, <laughs> it's, I need him to go there and I need him to just blatantly burn somebody. Because he needs to learn that if you're going to do something, be honest about it, be upfront about it, and just do it. Even if you're going to do something that's questionable, which I feel like you might address with your penance. But mine is to just work on that side of yourself because there's some work that needs to be done and that's what's going to help you heal. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, I thought he was, I thought he was mean. So I just decided my penance was that he, he was doing a lot of burning. So then he had to do some burning of his own and I want him to burn his favorite t-shirt, set a light, uh, his, fa his favorite t-shirt. And I think that would be pretty fair because, you know, when you got a favorite shirt that's worn in and you like to wear it, oh. I think that's, that's a, it's a, it's a significant, significant punishment for sure. But I also, I want him, I want him to film it and I want him to send it in because we love proof with all our surf scenes, Buck. We do. And I like that a lot. That is, I would be really upset to burn my favorite t-shirt. Yeah. It would make me think a lot. Yeah, it would make me think a lot about the choices I've made. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a fair penance. And like I said, it's, it's, it's easy to send in as proof because we love proof. And guess what, Buck? What? I got some proof. You got proof? Yeah, do you remember that surf scene a little while back? A guy by the name of Juju, I won't say his last name. I don't even know if I'm saying his first name correctly. He had this surf scene where he would surf snapper rocks and he would time his jump off 
he would purposely uh, mistime yeah. it and he would sucker people into jumping at the wrong time and they'd get swept down the beach without making that back. And there was this guy that had this just air of sociopath in his voice. Maybe even pleasure in watching the suffering of other surfers. And we couldn't work out why he would do such a, such a vicious act. And so my penance was, the, was for him that he had to write a poem and send that in to us. And oh wow! I've got I've got that the, the this here penance in my inbox, and I'm about to read it out to you. So this rendition, this vocal performance, I'm about to give you back might not be the intended accents and and level of expression that he wanted. So I'll have to. Uh, he's a sociopath, so he had none anyway. <laughs> I'll have to do my best. No, well, I figured if he had if he had some heart that he could express with his art, then we could. You know, well, you tell me if you think he's a sociopath after I read this. Okay, maybe maybe meant to be one of the ones where they're like yelling. What was that thing called? But it was like a that like '90s kind of yelling rap poetry oh. thing. <laughs> oh yeah, what was that? That was um... slam poetry. Was it called? Words with venom, words that bind, words used like weapons to cloud my mind. Can you, can you read it like that? No, no, I cannot. So it goes like this. On one hand, this is a game to be schoidenfreude. How do you say that word again? Oh, I already forgot. I did not oh. retain that at all. Okay. On one hand, this is a game of schadenfreude, perhaps, but upon deeper reflection, I find this view may have some gaps. I'm sorry to the trembling groms who unintentionally fell into my trap and to the surfer who this giant paddle re-fucked up their bad back. I'm sorry to the desperate souls who were there just looking for some peace. Those who thought that just one solid wave could cause their head noise to cease. However, I do not intend to wrap everyone in my game. It's only those with big bravados which I aim to shame. The entitled few who paddle around thinking they're top shit, starting fights and throwing tantrums, yell, burn, spit. For I hope for all people caught in this struggle, in the paddle against the sweep, that the walls of raging whitewater made a safe space for them to weep. When you see an angry prick like this feeling the wrath of my surf sin, you don't have to be a sociopath to at least reveal a grin. As the water strips back their egos and they leave their vanity in the sand, I hope that they realise the great fortune which they have. Oh, wait, hold on. Oh, you didn't fucking rhyme that bit. Anyway, yeah, that's pretty advanced. Not all poems rhyme, Buck. Yeah. As there is no better place for reflection than in the violent churning sea, you are sent into a furious bliss which can put your mind at ease. Wow. That was incredible. That's pretty fucking good. That was good, right? That was really good. Holy yeah. shit. No, not a sociopath. He's an artist. Yeah, man. Or both. But I don't know if the two are mutually exclusive, but I'm going to give him a pass. Not only did he... Look, all people that send surf scenes are great people. They're self-aware. They're willing to heal they, they know they're fucked up. They're not scared to admit it. There's so many virtues of the surf sinner, surf, surf sin E. And anyone who goes to the next step of completing their penance and then revealing their penance is they're, you know, we need to get him on the show. I, I fucking, I'm so, I'm so impressed with that poem and, and everything about it. Oh, he's healed. He is a, yeah. he's a virtuous man. You know, like on that TV show, Dexter, how he is a sociopath, but and he realizes it, and he only kills people who deserve it. I haven't watched it, but sure, premise. Okay, there we that's go. it's an old show. 
Thanks, Buck. Please send your surf scenes in. Danny at stabmag.com. Buck at stabmag.com is our emails. That's also in the episode description. Now let's chat to Matt Biolis, who needs no introduction, so I won't give him one. Sounds good. I was at the surf ranch for the last two days. Oh, no way. What was happening there? Tube riding. <laughs> What just was it? Was it you there with friends, or what was the scenario? I was actually there with a bunch of Aussies, very financially sound Australians. Came over a group of about six of them. They brought a young guy, like a physio, to take care of them, and they brought a Sasher stacker. Sasher put it all together, and he's like my, my team kind of guy, marketing guy down in Oz. And is that the typical clientele or is that a t- the typical day for the surf ranch at this point? I would say that's the typical clientele, yeah. That and say company retreats. Like I guess I just heard that Rip Girl's doing a company thing there next week. Right. But you figure all it's 50, you know, it's a minimum of 40 grand just for the bare bones this off season. But normally people are spending 50 grand a day there. What was their ability like? Did they have the wave to its maximum ups and they were riding the ct3 which is kind of a crumble it crumbles most like the first 40 seconds and then there's the tube at the end there's like three guys on subs they and they make 90 percent of their waves they just stand there and enjoy it and then um a couple guys riding like really big oversized shortboards like not even shortboards like eight foot mini mouths are they having the time of their life Having the time of their life. Yeah. yeah. Sasha, he's like he's like a short round world class kind of fifty year old. And the physio kid would just park himself in the tube and get fifteen second tube rides across the pool on a five eight JS. Hey, something I don't know. How well do you surf? How would you describe your own ability? As I get older, it gets better on the curve, you know. So for twenty, as at twenty, I was below average. At thirty, I was average. At forty, I was kind of edging up above average. And forties into my fifties, now I'm probably definitely above average for a fifty-year-old because I just keep surfing. But my my teens and my twenties were surfing. I surf, but it was the focus was work. All the club surfers I hang out with and whatever say lopez all the way on it's just like i don't know, say you know what all those years you guys were traveling the world enjoying surfing i was working and now i get to do you think it a shaper's surf ability is relevant to their ability to understand how a board works and, and make decent surfboards it definitely helps yeah it definitely helps um you know there's a few shapers that surf really good on performance shortboards um i'm not one of them that, you know, like say Darren Handley, he was a hot shot surfer, you know, he, I'm not sure how his surfing is now, but he was, he was a hot shot shortboarder. He was like the hot coolie kid at one time. There's a few like that, but most of the guys come from pretty humble surfing backgrounds, you know. Oh, we're going to talk about the book in a moment, but I'd love to just quickly ask you a few questions about Stab in the Dark, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. How did, how did you feel to, to come second this year? Did that hurt? Was it? I was fine. I'm more than fine with it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's just consistent. It's good just to get the invite and it's really good to, to um, consistently be in the top end. I was always super proud. They don't, even, they don't really mention it. They always say, Oh yeah, Matt, he won seven in the dark 
two years ago or whatever it was. But I like to think of it as we won like three stab in the darts because, you know, I think it was almost unanimous, you know, like Mick, uh, Dane, Mick and Dane both picked it as their favorite board. And then Jordy, you know, he was like, ah, it's probably the best board, but I'm going to go with the JS because you guys both picked that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you're referring to the stab in the dark or all stars where we had three. We came so close to three. Yeah, so yeah, you're right. That is, that is probably that is the ultimate test, isn't it? That one where it was really rad. It'll get make us a six one, a six zero, a five ten, and a five eleven, and they're all gnarly guys. And so we had to make four boards, and Julian got hurt or got had to pull out, but he would have been the five eleven. Um. So yeah, to me, it was like a triple. You know, it was great. So there's there's no pain when when Britt Merrick's name got mentioned uh, and you're sitting in the crowd there. You must have been there must have been a little bit of disappointment. Just the initial disappointment, but it was you know it was so close. I kind of I was at the premiere in San Diego and so was Britt and he had like an entourage. It was kind of funny, but that's how all you know. We've done a couple joint promotions with them and I'm blown away how they just roll so deep. But it's, that's their passion. And um, Britt, Britt was good. I remember you guys were. I hadn't paid attention to this podcast yet. You know, I'm old and busy. But I remember you guys were making fun about how he said, I love you, Matt, you know, and his... By all us, I love you, man. I'm, I'm thankful for you. And, uh, yeah, give him some love. But, yeah, you know, that really brief initial disappointment. But then I kind of knew it was coming because he caught, like, five perfect waves in a row on that board, and he just just went up and just did beautiful turns right in perfect sections. And, you know, he had more good sections on that board than he did on the other, most of the other boards. And it just looked like, okay, this, how do you go against that? But, you know, I'm happy. Yeah. You know, Sam pointed out that during Geordie's stab in the dark, that all the boards that he ditched and was really critical of were typically the boards that he was surfing in, in worse conditions. So that variable is always a tricky one with Stab in the Dark because if you get a couple of really good waves, you, you're going to tend to favor that board. I think I had that problem with the Taj one, although I really didn't like the Taj one because I didn't, I'd never worked in that technology. I wasn't really sure what to do. But, um, I didn't have control of the glassing or anything. But um, I remember watching, I think, the Taj one go, oh my God, he's riding the worst waves on our board. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so, hey, did you tell Britt that you loved him uh, when he got off stage? No, I went over and just shook his hand and high-fived him and all his, his cronies. Yeah. I don't think he loves me. He loves that I exist, you know, the, the dark side, the, a little bit of edge. What is the typical dynamic between shapers at this point of your career? Do you feel a burning competitiveness or are you happy to I think just- there's camaraderie amongst shapers that work with the elite athletes, the, the top-level surfers, because we know how hard it is. You know, um, I get along really good with John Pizel, with Darren Handley, with, um, you know, I've had a great mellow relationship every time I see Marcio Sharpie. Um, for years, we have an affinity for vintage airplanes that we chat about occasionally. Um, anyway, it's kind of in the same game as you. They understand the hardships, that and the, the highs and the lows and what you're dealing with. And going through. Johnny Calbianca is a very good friend of mine for decades. He was a lost shaper in brazil 20 years ago um you know the list goes on i get you know get along good with all those guys i think we all like to chuckle and make fun of the instagram shapers you know just <laughs> what 
Yeah. Can you define Instagram shaper for me? Instagram shapers are just guys that make, you know, one to three boards a week and put 30 photos on the, of them on Instagram and they look beautiful. Usually they're paying someone else to glass them and make up for modest at best shaping skills. And there's just no real challenge to it. You know, you just get on the board and wiggle down the line and have fun. Some of them elevate and turn into, you know, take it up a notch and become good at what they do and more power to them. What's it like when you see one of your team riders ride someone else's board? Is that, what's that process like? Do you like seeing that or is that? I mean, it, it, it depends on how it works. In general, if it's a respectful person, respectful team rider that knows what they're doing and they're doing it to better the process, it's it's cool. You know, like Kaloe in the last two years has gotten quivers from pretty much every major brand slash shaper you could. And anything that works better than average, he's shump bringing to me. I'm not asking him to, but he's really open about it. And it was a, a good process. A way long, long time ago, um, I was uh, I was working with local motion. I was like kind of building their California boards. It wasn't much of a program, but I developed a relationship with local motion. I'd even go over there and shape in Hawaii for their stores, put local motion mayhems. It was just fun. It's cool. There's random pictures of Bruce Irons riding mayhems with local motion logos on the nose. And Shane Bastian was um, riding for local motion at the time. It was right before Shane really started riding my boards, mostly in contests. And I asked the, the president slash head guy at Locomotion, I go, doesn't it bother you? He's out there on Channel Island boards. You know, Al Merrick's not necessarily Channel Islands. And he goes, you know what? He's he's representing our brand and he's out there on the world stage battling against Kelly Slater. And, you know, whatever, if he's found a tool that's going to help him better represent our brand and do a better job for himself, then I support it. That was 25 years ago. I always remember that. That was a good, his name was Calvin Maeda that told me that. He's a good guy. I did notice that when Coco and Mason were in the electric acid, they were they were overly um, respectful to you. They mentioned your name like six hundred times every chance they got, and were, that loyalty was nice. And it must be um... loyalty from the royalty. Who could ask for more? Huh? <laughs> yeah, he's um, you know, we joke. Coco and I joke along with my wife. She like kind of sits in my world. She sits kind of halfway between my daughters and my wife. <laughs> Like as our relationship, um, she's amazing. Uh, I'm great watching her grow up from like this little twelve-year-old girl coming over in the summer in Serpent T Street to the woman she is today. She's so in charge and in control of everything. And then Mason's—he's—he's he's the dream. I mean, it, it, there's no better example of a representative for a surfboard brand than Mason Ho. Oh yeah, he's the most entertaining human alive. I can't even imagine what it's like having him on your roster and just knowing that all the love for him is is then affiliated with with your boards and especially his love of surfboards. Yeah, he's the best. He's incredible, and he's gonna do it till he's till in his sixties, just like his dad. You're obviously incredibly biased having a board in the mix, but do you ever think that you can? watch watch these episodes and see things that the surfers can't and actually have a better read on the boards that they're picking than they can because they don't get to see the footage i sit around i watch this one it's hard for me to remember all of them over the years but i watched this one and 
I, I, funny, I watched it with my 12 year old son. He's a decent surfer and he's getting into it, but he's pretty, he's got a pretty critical eye. And we both kind of say like, Oh, that one's kind of sluggish. That one's kind of dick. We kind of agreed. It was funny, but, um, I thought a couple of the boards looked really good. I thought it might've been, maybe I thought the JS looked really good. I'm surprised that he didn't pick that he didn't, the JS didn't go further. I guess my question is also, do you think the surfer is the best judge, better than a shaper or better than yourself? Someone with a you really know, high... Interesting. I, never, I never noticed before or heard or saw or thought of it, but someone was commenting that they thought the JS looked good. And I almost swear that I thought I saw it might have been on Stab's feed or maybe Jack's personal feed on Instagram, where he actually responded to some random guy and said, yeah, looking back, I think it worked good as well, which validated my opinion. And he said, but they don't let us watch the footage. So he said he had to judge everything off of feel, nothing on sight. And I don't remember, it's not in the, they don't tell us that in the rules. And I don't know if it's ever been said publicly. And I think it could add to the, it could actually add even more to the mystique of Stab in the Dark. Because I it, I was unaware of it. Yeah. Or at least for. Yeah, it's shown up. It's definitely shown up in some of the films. Working like, with these surfers a lot of time, whether it's Kaloe, like an, an hour out at T Street in the morning or Griffin at Salt Creek, it'll be like, yeah, this board kind of felt, eh, but then I went home and saw the footage and we're like, oh my God, that board's really good. And then there's vice versa. Oh, I thought this thing was great, but then we watched the footage and I didn't really like it. So I think that feel, whether your, your question was about whether the surfer is the best judge, but there's a lot of variables going on with Stab in the Dark. And the interesting one is they don't get to see the footage. What do you think is a better judge, feel or looking back at how it looked? I think, I don't know. I mean, for like drugs all that matters is how it feels right <laughs> <laughs> but if you're performance art and you're being judged by how it looks and looks is what matters i mean it might feel amazing to do a soul arch at j bay on a single fin but you're not going to get any points for it it's always so funny when you see someone on drugs and their face is just a mess but you can you just know that inside that they're having a great time but it's it's oh, but i mean how it feels i mean it feels great i go out on a 610 quad and feels amazing i'm the water's skittering under my feet and i'm flying and gliding but it doesn't look all that good so these guys are being judged by how they look so it's looks yeah they're two pretty distinctly different metrics i, I was actually thinking so you've just released this book and i was i was flicking through it and the waves that the guys got on that trip was so astounding and so naturally the photos are equally just so incredibly high quality the big the best collection of surf photos probably might have ever seen in terms of the waves and surfing going on and i was i was really staring at some of the photos because they're so good and i was wondering from your point of view what do you prefer when you when you're looking to sort of gauge a board's performance can you tell more from a still image the way it's you know frozen and you get to analyze the way it's moving through the water or video? Still image is really hard to judge a board's performance. I think that's really, really, really hard. The video is where you see the performance, where's where you see a board. Yep. So you can look at how the water's coming off the rail, this, that, and the other, but eh, eh. I don't know. It's pretty hard. It can it can easily be a, a lie, can't it? Like a still image, it can be a, a, a split second that's misleading. 
Yeah, you know, there's, I've said it before and probably too many times, but when when I first started working with a high level, like Chris Ward, when he was like a 15-year-old kid and just a phenom, and I could tell that if he liked a board, he'd be doing wraps and turns and gouges and surfing rail to rail. And once, if he didn't like a board, he'd end up pumping it down the line and trying airs. And you can get in the best in the best photos might be a big front side grab rail air, but he, the board's probably not that good because he couldn't control. wasn't surfing rail to rail like Nick Fanning type surfing is when you know a board's working good. And uh, so let's talk about the book. Can you tell me the story of, of the book and and what made you want to? What made you want to create this thing? Because books aren't easy to make. They're, they're it was one of the hardest. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. It, it took a lot of long time. It took a lot of work with a lot of different people. Yeah, it was hard. It was a passion project to say the least. Um, the boys, you know, Pete Matthews was kind of the initial. Um, him and um, who's a, Pete Matthews is a kind of a classic character down in Bali. He has the White Monkey Surf Shop. He's he's in control of our brand in Indonesia, Lost. And he's tight with um, Nate Lawrence and the whole, like, Uluwatu kind of expat crew. Um, he called Dino, or him and Dino were chatting, like, it would have been, like, July of 2020 when, I mean, you couldn't even surf trussels at that time. There's a couple weeks they even closed, you know, the beaches in San Clemente. But, um... You know, we were, uh, he's like, hey, I think there's a way to get in. If you guys really want to come down here, I think there's a way in. You can basically buy a business visa. It's not easy, but it seems like it's possible. And evidently no one had really done it yet. But, um, and basically Dino just honed in on that and started and went to work on it. So they jumped through all these hoops. It's pretty well documented in the book in a very humorous way through Pete's manic way of talking but they got they got they made everything happen they figure out a way to get in they uh, got in basically legally per se you know they got visas they got stamped they found they got a flight down there and um they got the incredible waves they surfed three weeks in the mental wise another week or two Zimbabwe, a little bit of bali and as the trip progressed i was also I had put together a trip for myself and my family, Coco and her boyfriend, Mark McMorris, the snowboarder, and Chloe and his wife, and we all met up in the Maldives. Um, Maldives opened. We were there the week it opened for International. And we all went down there, and they market, the resort marketed um, come surf with Chloe and Coco, get, get a surfboard and buy Biolas. So Kaloi went straight from Indo to the Maldives and just started unloading me how amazing everything was. Like, we got all this footage. We went, no, 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 it's gonna be. I'm gonna make a movie. And I'm like, hey, I want to be involved in your movie. I go, all five of you guys are on my boards. I'm the one guy that kind of is a part of everything. You know, you don't have the clash like you would with Red Bull and Monster or all these. They all have different clothing sponsors. They have different drink sponsors. They have different everything. And he's like, you know what? This is my time. This is my movie. I love the movies you guys did. I love classic movies from all eras, but this is my time and we're going to do this. And I'm like, okay, great. I love it. Fine. What are you doing with the photos? He goes, I don't know if there are any photos. I go, if Nate Lawrence is on that boat, there's photos. <laughs> I go, what are you doing with the photos? He goes, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. I go, let's do something with the photos. Maybe we make a book. I'll make a book. 
And he basically right there in a rainy night at dinner in the Maldives, he said, okay, well, I own all the photos. Um, I paid for everything. So yeah, you can make a book. That's that was October of 2020. It took a year and a half to get the books in my hands. Yeah, I've seen books be released as as part of a film release or as as to mark an occasion. And to be honest, it's it's pretty unexciting, especially in this era, to to hear a book. And I and I felt the same way about yours. I'm like, all right, I've seen the movie, um, you know, a book that's great. But it wasn't until I picked it up and saw the amount of effort you'd gone to, the the quality of the writing. That Pete guy is hilarious, and he's got some incredible takes. And then the people you brought in, like that Lewis Samuels story with um, the Andinos, is is incredible how did you have that level of quality in your head like i'm sure you've never worked in print media or how did you pull off such a, a high quality book i'm just i'm just a lifelong fan of quality print um i'm a reader i'm a bit of a writer um not a professional writer but i like to write like my instagram posts are long and i've written some stuff for stab and what youth and blah blah blah, blah. and i'm an art i'm i was an artist now i'm more of a design director, I suppose. But, um, you know, I have a passion for art and humor and cartoons. And I just wanted to paint a big, wild picture. So basically, a month or two later, I made it into Indo. And I was at uh, Lakey Peak with the Peak guy who has a place at Lakey's. And he started telling me all the stories. I'm like, look, we got to document all your stories. So he goes, oh, Matt George can do it. Okay, well, fuck Matt George. The guy's made Hollywood movies and he's he's done everything he's been everywhere so matt we flew matt to lakey peak and basically he just took a couple hundred hours of dictation from pete and put it into word form and he left it very purposely raw and run on and basically free-flowing speaking like manic you know no care whatsoever of any grammatical correctness and they handed me 35 40,000 words (laughs) And I spent another 100 hours cutting it in half and then handed it to a copy editor in Bali, Leo Max, one of the expats down there at Ulu's. And he added, you know, he took it another level cleaner for me. Um, And then just chatting back and forth with Nate Lawrence, we had so many photos and how do we package all these photos and break it up? So we said, well, why don't we, it might have, and it was his idea, I'm pretty sure, let's make a, a, treat it like a giant hardcover magazine where each one of these guys gets their own profile piece and we can frame it differently and we can do the layout differently. Ty Little did the layout. So the layout and the color story and everything for each of the profile pieces we did differently than the rest of the book. And then to make it really fun, I said, fuck, I'm going to get a different guy to do every single profile. So I love Lewis Samuels. I think between him and Derek Riley 20 years ago, 15 years ago, they kind of redefined surf journalism, how it's written, and the, they kind of put that first sardonic spin on it. Took a lot of persuasion, but I got him to do the Dino and Kolohe story, and we talked about the best way to do it. We did it separate. We contrasted it. Then um, we got Travis Ferreri, who's um, you know a smart, intelligent, younger generation guy who's had a lot of experience. And we hooked him up with Ian Crane. And then my old pal Derek, we put him with Luke because they're kind of two peas in a pod with their sort of metro fashion debonair sort of stylings, you know. And um, we let we let Derek have his way with uh, with Luke, you know, spiritually, not so much physically. 
and then I did the call the panel one myself, like just basically ripped off the Prost questionnaire, you know, the old French uh, interview style they do in the back of, of uh, Vanity Fair every month. And I did that with the Cola brothers to really try and find out how they are different and the same. And it's really fun. I did them both differently and they didn't know each other's answers. And half the answers are exactly the same and half the answers are complete opposite. And it was really fun to do that. Yeah, nice. I can't believe how, how good that book is. It's the, the quality of the words is, is just astounding. Speaking of quality, Sam mentioned that he was having a back and forth with you recently. You guys were trying to work something out and you were, you were just never satisfied and you're always pushing. And he put that down to probably why you're so successful. Can you explain your process there and, and what's going on in your head when you're working on something and how you know something's done? Mm. I don't know. I just wanted to, I do most things to make, to make myself happy, to please myself. So, but over the years I've become enough business minded where I know there's deadlines and I know you can, you can paint a masterpiece, but if it's too if it's late then it's, it's useless. So there's, you have to keep yourself in check with there. And I think that's, um, kind of the fine line you have to straddle if you want to be creative and do good things, but still be in business, you know, like, you look at fantastic artists over the years, like you know, exceedingly talented, radical, over-the-top people, whether it's like um, John Michael or or uh, or all the way back to um, Van Gogh or whatever. These guys are so influential, but really most of their success is in the aftermath because there is no balance you know, and you have to balance business and creativity and, and push. So, so Sam and I, we have our back and forth because he's got one prerogative and I have my prerogative and we have to find where they meet in the middle so we can do things together. Have you ever taken it too far, burnt relationships, had to learn any hard lessons with that approach though? Because it's it's pretty typical story, right? Like people uh, have an extremely high quality, but then other people don't have the same standards or expectations and, the, and then they yeah, butt heads. I've burned bridges. You know, I've ruined relationships. I've burned bridges. I've made mistakes. I've lost money. I've had businesses go up and go down. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't made the, you know, I haven't been divorced or gone bankrupt. So I, but I've walked the fence, you know, I walked the line. Let's talk about the title of the book, The Last Crusade, A Surfing Odyssey of Biblical Proportions. Was that intentionally provocative? Yes, but it wasn't meant to be religiously provocative. Um, I'm pretty down the middle religiously. My, my, my mom was Methodist. My dad was Jewish. There was no religious stabbing there going on. It was more just a slight tongue-in-cheek sort of political jab, if anything. It's just like the last great surf trip, you know, like... It was actually difficult. Like, when was the last time a surf trip was difficult? You think back at, you know, Naughton and Peterson. What they did was pretty rugged. It was pretty radical um, ahead of its time. And this, you know, this costs money to do it. But fuck it. People go, oh, they're just spoiled brats running around the world. But it was a lot of work. They jumped through a lot of hoops. They they put in the effort. Um, they, they navigated these radical social, you know, protocols that were going on at the time and they did it for the love of surfing and some people are like saying you know they're negative on people like us that traveled a lot during covid but we followed the rules i mean i did one trip 
to Indonesia a year and a half ago in pretty deep COVID when there was like three people in all of LAX. But, you know, my son and I, we did like 16 P PCR tests in three weeks. It was just insane. We, we came home with noses that looked, we looked like we'd been someone that's been a cocaine addict for 20 years. <laughs> so, you know, we you, you just, time will show that, you know, all the lockdowns and all the, um, the, the things that everybody did to try and keep everyone safe, you know, in the end, it's, uh, it's pretty questionable whether it made much difference at all or not. Yeah. But that was a concern for you. You weren't just disregarding the, the health of the greater good. You didn't, you didn't believe that there was any, like, did you believe there was some merit to what were considered experts and their opinions on, yeah, I mean, I mean, hey, I was like, I was washing my vegetables in 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 April of 2020. You know, like, I was like, I I I did. I I was on board with everything. You know, we we uh, but in the end, I think like right now it's like travel with a vaccine card. But I think the original thing, tra traveling with PCR tests, is actually more regimented and safer because with the vaccine you can still contract and spread it and it hides the, the the symptoms so it's almost more spreadable with the vaccine because you're not feeling that you're sick with the pcr test i mean we're taking a test and in 24 hours get on a plane and then you get off the plane and they round you up and throw you in a bus and give you another test before you can leave the airport and you know singapore and jakarta and, and everywhere you go so it was pretty it's pretty regimented you know, it was, um, we just went along with it. Yeah, well, I mean, the title of the book certainly worked. It got a lot of people's attention. It actually reminded me, Scotty Pippen just released a book and he just yeah. so happened to start saying in the media that he thought he was a better basketball player than Michael Jordan. What was the name of the Michael Jordan movie? The Last Dance. The Last right? Dance, yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't know if it was a reaction to that because he he might have got a little stitched up in his own mind about the way he was represented in that movie. But anyway, around the time of the release of his book, he started talking about how he's a better player than Michael Jordan. And it definitely helped um, get a lot of attention for his book. And, and um, this name online that you came up with really definitely fired a few people up. Can I read some comments to you and get you to respond to them directly? Um, if you want, I suppose. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I would love to get you just to, to respond to these directly. You kind of have a little bit already. But yeah. uh, I guess, well, actually, before I read anyone's, any of them specifically, you, when you use the word crusade, you weren't talking about the holy wars of the Middle Ages where Christians were um, taking back land in Muslim countries. Was there a reference to that or was that just a... Were you looking, no, you no, not at all. I mean, it was more like I'm a child of the 80s and I just thought Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you know, it's like... It, was 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 steven spielberg you know steven spielberg's a jew so i guess i am as well we we're definitely not promoting the the christians you know trying to battle the muslims for territory by any means hey what do you think happens when we die uh that's not for this thing you know i'm like who do you think you are Derek riley you think you're gonna get that one out of me why is that one off limit do you keep your spiritual beliefs personal oh i'm not an expert I don't know. No one is. So I, I don't like people telling me what's going to happen. And I don't, I don't, I have no idea. I would love to, to, to think that there's an afterlife, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes, yeah. it makes the idea of death a little bit nicer, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to live my life as good as I can until that point. So 
as little regrets as possible without hurting other people. That's a good approach. All right, this this comment says, couldn't scream it louder, privileged. How do you feel about that one? You earn your privilege. Those kids have worked really hard to become high level at what they do. And with with being a, an expert in your field, and a, you uh, you can afford to make things happen. You've, you've earned the trust of, of brands, corporate brands that can help finance things to happen. And they work really hard to do that. Formula One race car driver, you know, they go to Monaco and eat caviar and hang out with, you know, billionaires. They, they've earned the privilege. Privilege, get good at what you do. Yeah. I mean, some people, I, I see your point. Some people are born on, born on third base. But I think you earn your privilege. Some people are born into privilege, but none of those guys were. None of them. You know, Dino was a street urchin. Nicola Pinto's dad's a high school teacher. There's, there's no privilege. They weren't born into wealth. They've created everything they have. Let's talk about Dino's part in the book because he describes Sam Clemente. I actually got it written down because I, I, um, I wanted to quote it directly. It was definitely different when he was a kid. I got in on the tail end of that. I, I moved here in 87 and it's a hell of a lot different than it is now. There's no doubt. Yeah. In, in the book, he describes it, more blue collar, lots of Marines around, a lot of drugs and low life spikers, surfers all on the beach. And you, you see that in most of the coastal areas of Australia now. It's the same thing. It's, it's, the, it's the, another buzzword, gentrification. Yep. And I was interested to know what your take was because the guys on this trip in particular are really clean living. They barely drank a beer the entire trip. They were there surfing really clean. That's one of the things in the book, you know, Dino told the guys to get all the beer off the boat and traded it with the dockhands for ice cream. They unloaded all the beer, loaded it up with ice cream. And, and I was like, there's all these stories coming out of Pete. And I was like, well, yeah, is there photos? Is there photos of the guys taking the, no, there's no photos. Is there photos of the ice cream? No, there's no photos. Okay. How are we going to bring this to life? So going back to my love of classic stab and they did all those amazing illustrated cartoon stories with Ben Brown from Sydney, the, 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 the Australian illustrator. And I called up Ben and I said, hey, what if I send you 10 short vignette stories of these cool things that happened to our crew in Indo? And let's see, let's have you have a swing at illustrating them. And let's make it look like, uh, like a vintage uh, Playboy cartoon, you know, like with the feet. So I sent him some Playboy screenshots from old Playboy cartoons and sent him the, the stories and we ended up using like six or seven of them. And basically they illustrate cool, funny, classic things that happened during the trip that no one caught on camera. Yeah, the illustrations are incredible. Ben Brown, of course, for anyone who isn't familiar with his work, has worked with all like huge bands, Nirvana. Um, I can't even, I wouldn't even know where to begin listing uh, some of his work. And I recommend everyone check it out. I'm just a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of Ben. I, I dig him. I work, I, I, I um, I, I like to work with him. He's great. He was fantastic in the process. Then um, going back to like the old school San Clemente, there's a longtime San Clemente artist, Roy Gonzalez, who's, uh, you know, he was he was here well before I was and already well known when I showed up doing all these great caricatures. So we had Roy do caricatures of everybody on the trip. And we use those caricatures as the title pages for their profile pieces. And, um, 
So that kind of brought another, rather than just a photo, like there's plenty of photos of those guys standing on the beach or on the bow of the boat, soaking up the sun, looking privileged. <laughs> and, but we wanted to add some humor and some character and bring some San Clemente culture into it. So we brought Roy Gonzalez on board for that. Yeah, definitely worked. And I'd love to get your take on what the, what do you think about these young guys and their super clean living and the stark contrast to what you probably saw when you first moved there in terms of how people spend their days and nights? I think that they're approaching it in a much more professional manner. I think that they're, they're realizing how difficult it is. Especially, you know, Koloi Griffin, you go, fuck, I got a heat against Gabriel Medina tomorrow. I mean, come on, you're not going to do that. Staying up all night doing blow, you know, it just doesn't happen. You can't get away with it anymore. Sure, maybe at a certain point when, you know, 35 of the 44, top 44 are partying every night. Well, if it's, then it's an even table. But once half of these guys start are training and getting coached, and eating well and have dietitians and this and that and the other. Yeah, it's not as like, there's not as much personality, there's not as much character. But then if you don't do that, you're going to get kind of get swept away. You know, so it's either everybody's on the program or everybody's not. So if you want to compete and you want to make good living and you want to live a privileged life, then you have to clean up your act and work really hard. What would 21 year old Matt Biolas have thought? If if uh, he bumped into these characters now, when I was 21, I started realizing because of my partner Mike Riola, my business partner, who was just getting his degree from as a Florida Gator from the university in business and and uh, stuff like that. And I would just spent four years working in the surfboard factory, partying and kind of learning the basics of building surfboards and kind of little bit of guerrilla marketing. And when I was like 21, 22 years old, I basically stopped doing anything except uh, weekend drinking or whatever, <laughs> you know, for the most part. Like, I, I don't know how to say it without sounding like incriminating, but the 21-year-old Matt Biolas, yeah, we rallied against a lot of things, but that's the way it was. When we were 21, 22, 25, it was like, Christian Fletcher and Archie and and Dino and and whoever else was around, so it was just a different era, you know. But I'm I can't live that life now, and I'm not that man now. I'm the man I am, and basically this is the out the creative outlet that we can have now. The Lost Brand, the Mayhem Brand, it was it was based on anarchy to start off with. Do you feel like it's got the same spirit now? Are you? are you still as committed to, to that type of thinking and philosophy or have you altered uh, as you've matured? I think you have to be a little smarter. I think, you know, it's not so much anarchy. Like if you define anarchy, you know, there's anarchy, there's nihilism, there's all these things, um, all these great words. But in general, I think we're still the alternative to, you know, status quo, clean cut, cookie cutter way of running a business or a brand or marketing a brand still to this day i'd like to think that i think we've we you know as you age you pull back a little bit on certain things and as as we've seen with society you know and i hate to use the term wokeism or politically correct 
you definitely, you know, society changes and evolves through time. You know, back to the stories where my parents smoked cigarettes in the car with the windows rolled up with me in the back seat with no seatbelt. It's just, you don't do that anymore. No one does that, you know? So there's just things you can still do and things you just, just life evolves, culture evolves, brands and people evolve. But I still think that if you look at, say, Channel Islands or JS and the way that you just scroll their their Instagram or look at their media output and you look at lost surfboards, we're still different. We're still edgier. We're still funnier. We're still more, more visually creative and we still take more chances and are for the most part, you know, with guys like Mason Ho and, and such, we still have a, a very colorful way of doing things. Has success changed you for good or bad? Uh, I don't know. I mean, everything changes. What is, how do you define success? What is success? I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose a lot of money on this book. Is that success? Yeah. I mean, the ability to do that is successful. I guess I'm talking about the material measures of success because with success often comes a lot of added stakeholders and responsibilities and stress and, and it's desire. Success is desirable, but it can, it can be life altering in good ways and bad ways. And I was wondering if you had a, a feeling about it because it's, it's a generally a different disposition to be coming at it as an underdog and building and growing to being, I mean, you're at the top of a, of a pedestal right now. And, and I'm wondering if that affects you in, in good or bad ways. I'm sure it does in both. Yeah. You don't care to talk about that? I wouldn't really know how to pinpoint it. I mean, in good ways, I live a good life. I, I can go to Indo when I want. I can go snowboarding when I want, which is, that's what I like to do. I like to surf good waves and I like to snowboard. Um, I can send my kids to college and, you know, all the, all the things that I need, not necessarily everything I want, but everything I need. And, um, yeah, so that's a good thing. The bad, I don't know. Maybe I'm not as core as I was. I'm not as poor as I was. But I still, I look around at the business I'm in and I don't, I still think we're rustling feathers. I'm not trying to make everyone happy. We have our core constituents. We do what makes them kind of stoked. There's going to be haters. And if you don't have any haters, then you're not doing a good enough job. And what do you want out of shaping at this point? I'm very competitive, I'm very competitive. If I see another brand doing something well, I want to do that better. Um, I see other surfers doing well on other people's boards. I want my surfers to do better. I see a good display in a shop from another brand. I want to do better. I'm very competitive in a lot of ways like that. Is getting a world title on the male side of the sport something that is in your mind? Is that a, is that a specific goal? Yeah. I mean, you'd be lying if you said I'd be lying if I said I wasn't. You know, we um would love to do that. It's it takes a pretty pretty rare person, to, you know, to win a world title. There's not a lot of them. Um, but and I work as hard as I possibly can to give the surfers that I work with that are anywhere close to that of having the chance to do it. You know, like so right now it's Griffin, Kolohe, Yago. Um, you know, I've worked excruciatingly hard for Taj Burrow and a few other guys, but I am a hundred percent in for that. If they want 20 boards and they all suck, I'll make 20 more boards. 
And if they say, I want to try boards from another guy to help us out, then that's what we do. But in the end, I can name a couple of guys, a couple of brands, you know, that have won world titles in the, the last decade. And they're not capitalizing on it the way I capitalize on not winning world titles. So we are cognizant of the fact that it takes more than just a, a contest machine winning world titles to have a great brand and sell surfboards and connect with surfers around the world and kind of help them enjoy their life. And, and if you could pick one surfer that's not currently riding your boards to start riding your boards, who would that be? Hmm. That's interesting. I can't even, would like on the world tour or not on the world tour? I guess it's up to you. I mean, the world tour is uh, in the front of our mind a lot of the time, but I'm sure the surfers out there that, that you're really interested in that have never competed. Yeah. I don't know. That's tough. I mean, if you look at the world tour, I almost look at it as a business thing. Like instantly my, my greedy little Jewish brain goes straight to like, who would best, who would best help me tell my story, tell our brand story, not who's going to get me a world title, hmm. <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, we, we play around with Jack Robinson. It'd be great to make him, if we had him on board, that would be really cool for our brand for Australia really i like him he's fun i even liked his dad when we played around years ago um you know he'd be a really good balance it is taj is kind of getting older and not as involved every day grinding um i love australia the australian market so yeah he, he pops into my head but not but they're not so much like to win a world title you know it's more like if you want to win a world title you'd say like gabriel medina or you know, who's the surest bet, you know, whatever, Kelly Slater. But I think it's like who fits, who fits, I think fits our brand. And I think who would enjoy our boards and kind of make both sides look better. Are you or anyone on behalf of you approaching surfers at this point? Or is it the other way around now? They come to you. What? Are you or anyone on behalf of you and your brand approaching surfers at this point? Or is it work the other way around now where they come to you? I would like, I've always kind of, I've always liked to say that we we almost never approach surfers. Yeah, it's almost always been organic. I mean, even even when Taj came to us, it was Taj coming to us because he was hanging out with the Andinos. You know, Dino was still with Billabong and, and whatnot. Um, but it was, you know, he was almost like a like a mid-career free agent kind of thing. And, and um, Sam McIntosh helped, helped kind of helped broker that thing with Taj coming over. He more than helped. Um, he was instrumental in that happening. But once again, it wasn't, we didn't go out and target Taj. We didn't, I don't think I've ever really done that. And that could be corrected. But yeah, like, you know, the, you know, Yago was a natural process. And when things start going good, like even like um, recently, Connor O'Leary, you know, he ordered a couple boards. Him and some of the Aussie kids were stuck here, like in a positive way. Last summer, they they came and they're like, fuck, we might as well just stay. And him and Ethan Ewing, some of the kids there in town, they were surfing all the spots, hanging with all the kids, just kind of really assimilated into our community. And you know, Connor's like, oh, I'll try a couple boards, made a couple boards, and he went and won France on that that QS thing, this Challenger. So like, well, that went pretty well. And he goes, can I get some more? Yeah, I get some more. And then, so as far as I go out on a limb, it's like, hey, you know, I don't know 
what you're doing for the CT, but you know, you've paid for all the boards you've gotten for me so far, but if you want, you know, I'll make you a dozen boards to help kickstart the CT. He goes, yeah, yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm stoked on that. I'm going to keep writing boards from various people, and but I'm glad that you offered to help and I'll let you know. And, and since then he's ordered more boards, but I just try and keep it, keep it light and yeah, no pressure. And it's something I'm fascinated to know is if, um, how does it work with uh, surfers who aren't on the team getting boards? Is anyone that's not on the team paying for boards? Most, and yeah, like I said, um, a lot of guys, if they're not really like hundred percent, they usually just, they usually pay. Yeah. You know, like we gave Gabriel Medina a couple fish, you know, but his daughter's on our, on our kind of B team program. She gets boards for a really good, pro- not his daughter. I'm sorry. His sister is on the program. She gets, you know, caught boards at our cost. And, you know, yeah, Gabriel Medina said he's going to ride when you're fish. You throw him a fish, you know. But, like, when these QS guys come to town, like, classically U.S. Open, a bunch of QSers show up. They want boards. They're going to pay for them, yeah. Connor bought, Connor bought the board that he won France on. No way. That's pretty great. I make 20 examples of that over the last 20 years, yeah. Hey, last question. You've seen the film and you've poured over the images. If that trip was a contest, who won? The general consensus is pretty open. Kaloe was the most consistent. Luke got the best waves. And Griffin and Crosby kind of battled it out for the highlights. Are you going to pick one though? What about what, who, who did you pick? I picked Dino. <laughs> Come on, you're the you're known as the opinionated guy. I thought you'd be happy. Are these like I'm only going to give you so much, motherfucker. Uh, right? Come on, I so I guess like all these these surfers are all like your children on some level, right? I think Crosby. I think for I think it was Crosby's coming out party. Okay. Hey, that was Mason Ho calling me. Um, but I think that was uh, I think it was Crosby's coming out party. I okay. think he's the breakthrough. You know, he's the breakout star. That whole thing. All right, Crosby gets the win. Let's uh, let's give it to Crosby then. But honestly, I put Kaloe on a Panthenon for just for doing it. Like he's he put the whole surf world on his back that summer and made that shit happen. 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 That's it. That's all we have for this week. Thanks for listening again. Thanks for sending your surf sins in. Please keep them coming and uh, yeah, be all you can be. Maybe I should end with a motivational quote. That's going to be the the new way to end the podcast every week because it's always weird just to click stop without a real punctuation mark on the ending. Any motivational quote can give you. So this week, only a dead fish goes with the flow. <laughs>